in a 64 Ford Aventura that my boss lets me drive. Look at all the college girls running around. It makes me feel so alive. That corner there is where I used to score. Damn, we're all in fat and all and so much more. Cruising down a memory lane of things I'd rather forget. Like my mom getting beat to a bloody pulp. Like the drugs and the booze can never get enough. Like the man that I accidentally killed by stuffing a rag into his mouth, unaware of his 98% black nasal passages. Cruising in a 64 Ford Aventura. That my boss lets me drive Driving past the film cartridge distributor Hey, let's go check out inside A lot of strange wheelchair tracks on the floor Hey, there's a guy that's been shot in the face And a broom shoved from a esophagus to anus, it seems I hate infinite jest, episode 17 Our guest this week from the Minority Arts Appreciation Society podcast Josh Kaluba Josh was calling in from the other side of the pond, previously in London, now in Newcastle, it seems. Go check out their podcast. We had a great talk today. Um, shit, there's nothing I can really add to it. And also, I've, wa- I've budgeted way too much of my time, and I wasted it on that song. So I hope you appreciate it, you motherfuckers. By the way, we hit 6,000 downloads this week. Thank you, guys. Uh, this is by far one of the most successful projects I've ever worked on. I don't know how to feel about any of that. I'm very conflicted. I mean, you know, maybe I just need to hit 10,000. Maybe maybe I'll feel something. I don't, I don't know. That would be up to you guys. I mean, I wouldn't want to ask something like that. Like, you know, adding another... Uh, you already did all the work, but I mean, if you could just duplicate 60% of that and get me to 10,000, I mean, that might be... That might feel good for me. Anyway, Josh Kaluba, episode 17, pages... Shit. Uh, Pages 470 to 503. Check it out. Check out the Minority Arts Appreciation Society podcast, episode 17, Josh Kaluba. I Hate Infinite Jest, episode 17, a prime number episode, which means it's probably good. I don't know. Uh, our guest this week, coming all the way from over the Atlantic, Josh Kaluba, one of the, the hosts of the Minority Arts Appreciation Society podcast. Did I get that right, Josh? Yeah. Hell, yeah, I'm the best. Yeah, uh, thank you for being on here, man. I'm really uh, appreciating it. Before, uh, oh, uh, yeah, before we get too into it, tell us uh, who you are, where we can find you, whatever you need to promote. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so yeah, I'm Josh. I'm from I'm from London. I'm currently living in Newcastle though because I study here. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I'll just plug my podcast real quick. But I'm really excited to talk about the book, so I'll be super quick. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, the Marriage Arts Appreciation Society podcast is essentially a podcast I do with my friend. Uh, the kind of aim of the, it started off just being a fun thing, and then with each just where we talk about music and, and films, but each discussion we realize we're bringing so much of our like personal lives into it that it's kind of become more of a podcast about uh, approaching kind of pop culture topics from uh, backgrounds that aren't usually talked about in like the podcast world or like that we don't voices don't usually hear from. So obviously I'm I'm black. I guess it's not obvious to the listener. Maybe from the name. I'm, I lo- I'm looking at a video. <laughs> I I'm I'm so embarrassed. I did not notice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
uh, and my, my podcast co-host is trans. She's also Irish and Jewish. So it's the more minority points. Uh, yeah. And yeah, we just try to give unique perspective to things or, or kind of, you know, uh, talk from a personal space. Some episodes that doesn't even come up, but, but that's mm. kind of the premise of the podcast. Uh, okay. So yeah, check it out if you're interested. Um, you find us at many streaming services. I'm sure, hopefully, Jesse will put some links down in the... Definitely. podcast description um definitely. yeah that, that's my deal that's my okay. deal you know it's uh, i i definitely need to check the podcast out because i was told i think i mentioned on one of the episodes how uh in a talk with cousin frank from episode six he was talking about how he was really trying to read books that were not written by white men really try to get out of his perspective mm. I'm like all right you know what i want to do that too and then as soon as i went to buy more books like ooh, brendan Bean, drunken irishman okay like just completely went right now i I don't know where to begin, I was, unfortunately. I was talking about this with my flatmate as well, because even, even I fall into that trap. Because uh, another part of that is a lot of the huge books that take up like a year of your life mm-hmm. are normally written by white dudes, like your James Joyce's, your Thomas Finchins. And they're so like exciting to get into, and you, you just want to like spend all your time in there. And then, but then you don't want to become that guy who only reads that type of literature. And um, to everyone else, you seem like an arsehole, I guess. Right. I mean, I, I feel like my weakness is like if somebody I already respect and I'm a fan of, like I feel like that's how I find all my books. Somebody I'm a respect, I already respect and who I'm a fan of will be like, this is the greatest book ever. Go read it. So it's like, well, I mean, if those other books were so good, surely they'd find their way to me. Aside from fact, but <laughs> no, because I can't find the people who are talking about those books to begin with. It's just outside of my realm. Oh, man. As a, as a white guy, I do kind of miss when I could just be lazy and like, yeah, you know, Kenny Rogers, best rock star ever. I don't need to know any more than that. But no, we have to, <laughs> we have to work on ourselves these days, all of humanity. Uh, so how exactly did you first come up? What is your literary background? How did you come upon David Foster Wallace and Infinite Jest overall? Yeah, so I think what's exciting about this for me is that um, I'm, I'm definitely the youngest, the youngest guest who's been on your show. I'm, I'm 20 years old, uh, so I, I feel like I am... You weren't the, up front with me. This it cancels now. No. I, I feel like I'm the illusory David Foster Wallace fan you keep hinting at, you know, the, the 18-year-old who discovers the book and their mind is blown and it forms their personality. I feel mm-hmm. like I started off as as that kid. Like, I, was it, I became interested in this when I was, like, 17, 18. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was just sold to me as this, like, amazing literary experience that you can get lost in and you have to read it twice and it's got all these secrets. And I think the main thing that really sold it to me is um, I was told it was very much about loneliness. And I think as a teenager, uh, loneliness is a thing you kind of obsess over. You, know, you listen to Elliot Smith and, and you read your Nietzsche and, you know, you, you get real, real, real moody. So <laughs> I, I really thought it would be that book. And then over the past two years, I've been reading it on and off. Um, and I think, I think I've grown a little bit as a person and had this whole like disillusionment period where I was like, wow, yeah, maybe David Foster Wallace is a bit of a piece of shit. And, and you know, maybe we shouldn't glorify like this white guy killing himself. Like maybe this is a really weird culture that's growing around this. Mm-hmm. And then now I'm at a point where um, this summer I decided, okay, I need to finish this book like as soon as possible. I need to move on in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm more and more annoyed with the book. I think it fails at a lot of points. And listening to the podcast was like cathartic at first. I was like, I could just listen to someone be annoyed about the book as I work through it. And then you started liking it and I was like, oh great. Now now I have to like 
now I feel like I'm missing something. And, and part of it that's frustrating for me is I can acknowledge parts that are good. I just feel like I'm being held hostage. I just want to go and read other things. Yes. Um, but I know if I stop reading, I might never pick it up again. And I don't want to become another person who didn't finish Infinite Jest. So that's where I'm at with the book. Okay. So wait, so you still haven't finished it yet or you have finished it at this point? No, I'm, I'm currently at like page 600. So okay. Okay. I'm a bit further away right now, but uh, yeah, I haven't finished it yet. All right. Well, that's good. You're on the journey with us. Uh, uh, so many people are like, don't worry. It'll all, I've heard, I've heard ultimately it'll all make sense in the end. Also, there's not really an ending. That's why you got to read it a second time, which just does not sound like anything I want to do. I'm finally, I finally have a good enough system set up where I tend to do my reading for the week. Like I have it finished by like Tuesday and then I can read other things and it's beautiful. But uh, I'm, I, I'm just kind of wanting to be done. Yeah. If, if it were not for the podcast format and wanting to stay on schedule, I probably would have taken a month off from the book by now. And that's me saying, like, having liked the last few chapters, it's just, it's just you're so far in and there's still so far to go, you know? I, I think what infuriates me is it's not like, um, you know, it's not like, you're into Dostoevsky, right? I haven't yeah. read Dostoevsky yet, but the way it's sold to me is like, you know, you finish it and it all comes together and it's really satisfying. And then, you know, implied there is you can move on. Whereas the way Infinite Jest is sold, it's like you finish it and you have no idea what happened and you got to read it again. Yeah. No, that, I, that infuriates me. The <laughs> idea that all that's waiting for me at the end of this is reading it again. Now, I, I, I feel like Dostoevsky is really like the... Uh... The, uh, the idealization of what people think of when they think of like, you know, I want to read a big challenging book. Like you read the whole thing and you learn things and like, oh, nobody's worded it like that. And then it's over and you just go look out the window for about 20 minutes a day and just ponder everything you've absorbed. Yeah. Whereas this, you're like, yeah, I, I read a sentence. I'm like, fuck this. I don't want this. No. But then I remember I had this podcast to do. So. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know. I don't know. Um, I can't remember who said this, but I remember someone on the pod said the book kind of has its own immune system. It's almost impossible to criticize it. And mm. I've, I keep developing this little Stockholm syndrome where, where the more bored I get, the more I have to intellectualize the boredom to justify the time that I'm spending. You know, I'm going to be dead maybe in 80 years. I'm spending a significant chunk of time reading this <laughs> book. Um, so I'm trying to justify it. And I'm like, well, he's, I'm meant to feel bored. Uh, and, and, you know, that's his whole thing. And my most recent theory is reading this is what I guess it feels like to go sober. I've never, like, hmm. had an addiction so bad that I have to become sober. Maybe I'm too young for these addictions to be apparent yet. But, but maybe this is what it's like to get up every day and be like, I have to sit down and not do drugs and be bored. Um, Maybe that's what it's like to read this. See, all right, my, my experience is limited. I've been, I, I've been, eh, whatever, I'll be honest on the podcast. A little bit, I, I, I drink a bit, not even too much, too often. But uh, lately I've been trying to cut it in half. I've been trying to do like three to four sober days a week. And I can tell you it is just the boredom more than anything else. Because I've been, I have just set myself on a clock where like, okay, it's 10.30 I'm going to take my brain on a little bit of a, you know, chemical merry-go-round for a bit. And then that'll be, you know, I'll tucker myself out before bed. And now, you know, you don't really have that. So it's a, well, I'm, I'm smoking weed, but so I guess, never mind. That entire analogy falls apart, but it's like, yeah, society, sobriety's terrible. So I do this other drug, but uh, it's not the same. Yeah. 
but not there is a boredom aspect of it and it's funny that uh if you look at it from an addiction component speaking personally the only part of the book that's really captivating to me is the stuff with don gately so i guess i guess it is kind of interesting to look at that like the story of the addict is the only thing that's really keeping me returning yeah. to this book and i i honestly feel like in the past like bit of the book the, like the middle of the chunk of the book i feel like that's what foster wallace is most interested in because i feel like there was actually loads of really interesting stuff happening in the tennis academy like really early on in the book i was really enjoying that and then and then in the middle it's really just uh the ennett house stuff that's captivating and you don't even really get huge chunks of uh tennis academy stuff since like the enfield i'm uh, not enfield since the escherton game mm-hmm. I, I don't remember really big moments happening so i feel like maybe yeah, Foster really... Wallace himself is more interested in Gately's story. Yeah, well, it's been... all right. Here's the other way I would put it: is that out of all the characters so far, the only ones I really care about is probably Gately. This is where, and maybe you can enlighten me on this uh, again, being younger and realizing like the boring aspect of it. A lot of people really identify with Hal. I feel nothing for Hal. As a matter of fact, I think I feel negatively about him. Like, oh, it's. A... Uh, you know, oh, I didn't react the way I thought I would. I, I, I need to go and ponder this. Does this make me a bad person? Go fuck yourself. I don't care. But I know a lot of people. Uh, what, what is your take so far on like Hal? Who were, who are you identifying with? Who are you caring about as characters? Uh, Hal was really sold to me at the beginning because I had a friend who like deals with kind of, you know, mental health stuff, and they feel like the first twenty pages of how like trying to communicate and have to be understood and then be uh looked upon as a as a freak pretty much they thought that was a really great encapsulation of like what it's like to be sort of unable to communicate properly to people and always mm-hmm. seem like a freak so it started off really strong but yeah i don't even think how he's kind of a non-entity for for the past few hundred pages like he's he feels like an um an audience plug-in like mm-hmm. he is the character we see the world through and he doesn't really do anything. We just get to see things through his eyes. Like it's in those sections, it's Pamula. So I'm always excited to spend more time with. Yeah. He's all, and any scene of him is interesting. Yeah, he's a nice little. Was, yeah, point he's of a nice little agent of chaos. Like I, mm. I like Pamulus, but again, it's, it's. I I know it's like an ensemble cast, but like we're meeting these people, and then we just don't. I don't think we've seen Pamulus since Eschaton. And if I remember mm. correctly, I don't think he was doing so much in like. The ramp up before eschaton either but yeah i don't know all right the, the ensemble really worked best to me when um joel van dyne and ken O'Dirty and all the characters we'd met already started arriving at ennett house mm-hmm. and i feel like i so completely get those people they feel so vivid to me so i really feel the ensemble feeling in the ennett house sections but in the tennis academy like i keep forgetting the students personalities Oh, Lots yeah. of them have very there's, thin characters. There's yeah. Axelrod and Postal Weight, and it's like, I, I, I remember this name, and that's it. Uh, yeah, who was, wait, who was the giant girl in Eschaton? It wasn't Millicent Kent, it was... Oh, God, I don't, I don't remember, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't remember, I've lost, I, I've lost so much of this. Okay, so um, I, I guess we're good to get into the notes. Um, you and I talked before this, and I have stated that... Uh, it's been a little frustrating to me, given that the show is called I Hate Infinite Jest, and I've been liking it recently, but I found quite a bit in this week's section that I really did not like. 
We're doing 470 to 503. I'm going to read off my notes and uh, interrupt anytime you have something to interject. And I'll obviously take pauses. Uh, 470, we have Marathon Steeply, May 1st, still outside of Tucson. Steeply brings up a Canadian neuroscientist who developed a method of implanting hair thin electrodes to stimulate parts of the brain and prevent seizures. Marathon notes his father had a pacemaker using similar hair thin electrodes. Steeply says the brain stimulus gave intense feelings of pleasure, enough so that experimenters split off, half working to continue on animals and the seizure issues, and the rest pursuing it for its pleasure aspects. In experiments, the rats would press a lever for the electrode stimulation over and over, ignoring food and female rats in heat until they died of dehydration and fatigue. So obviously we have a, a, a correlation to the, the entertainment here. Mm-hmm. Um, even when the electrodes were removed and the lever removed, the animal would maddeningly press on anything, hoping for stimulation. The doctor, whose name was Elder or Older, it's not clear in the text, Wanted to experiment on humans, but wasn't certain where to get them. A janitor with security clearance in Manitoba leaked the studies, and suddenly there was a flood of volunteers outside the lab doors, despite knowing about the rat deaths. Psychologists found them to be upsettingly normal, just looking for a thrill. Said to be the condensed elixir of orgasm and religious enlightenment and ecstatic drugs and a cackling fire on a winter night, all in one electrode-induced feeling. I I do like that concept right there, where it's not like, no, it's not just a, a, a drug high. It's, you know, watching your son graduate and, you know, itching just the right spot. Yeah, it's, I, yeah, this is another bit that I kind of, there's lots of parts in this book that I can't tell how, to me, they feel a bit sophomoric, like a bit simple. And I don't know if, if I'm, if there's more to it or if I'm, I'm being obnoxious, but like, it is just a very simple, like, brave new world, would you put yourself in the happy pod argument that they're having. And I feel like that's happened a lot in the book. And it's explored way more interestingly with the Gately's uh, struggle with this newfound boredom and routine. And, and that is a really interesting way of exploring this. But this, I don't know, it just feels a bit obvious on the nose. Like, Yeah, the, the only thing that's really come out of the whole Morafe and Steeply conversations is... Uh when Oren starts talking about like, yeah, this giant woman is interviewing me. It's like, and even that, that's not, it's not like, it's not like there's any substance there. That's just like, ah, I know who that is. And that's, that's it. It hasn't really added anything. And we know there's some stuff in the background where uh, steeply has been assigned to follow Oren around to find something out. So there might be something a bit more nefarious hanging in there at the end, but really I haven't gotten anything like, and of course they have that conversation there. And then my next note is, and then pretty much after talking about this whole thing and then steeply adds by free choice, of course, meaning they're still having the same argument they were having before with Marath uh, saying Americans were just out for pleasure and had no like group national identity or care with steeply like, well, well, these were Canadians and they were, it's all, yeah, it's very ham fisted and on the nose. Yeah. It's, I, I really like steeply, as a presence, I think he's a very like well-realized character, but it is kind of, he is symbolizing America, basically justifying itself to a country that wants to destroy it, right? It, it reminds mm-hmm. you a bit of, like, you ever read Watchmen? Yes, yes. Right, yeah, it reminds you of the whole thing of um, having to convince Dr. Manhattan that humanity is worth saving. I feel like I, maybe the point of these sections is steeply trying to convince a Canadian that America is worth saving. Mm-hmm. But I feel like Marath hasn't been fleshed out enough that like it doesn't it doesn't 
it's not like Dr. Manhattan where he has a little bit of connection to these people. Like Marie doesn't seem to, there's no, there's no soft spot to prod on that. He's just like, yeah, now you're all American pigs. And I do a French accent, but I'm not, uh, yeah, and me and my girlfriend have actually been talking this week about maybe moving to Montreal. So I think that, I think this book might've dug in a little bit. Join the AFR. That's right. Yeah, I go hop in front of a train. Um, uh, so when the U.S. and the Canadians together solve up horrible possibilities of these electrodes as recreational pleasure, leading to calamity, loss of human capital, etc., both governments defunded the program and agreed to make it a pure military weapon operation, literally stormed the facilities and killed the test animals. This all happened in the 70s. Um, yeah, Steeply discusses all this as an analogy to the entertainment, which seems to have achieved the same pleasure center without the use of electrodes. And, you know, we're obviously, people call this book very prescient. So I, I think the, uh, the connection we would have most nowadays is like cell phones, where I do, it, it does annoy me a little bit when you like roll over in the morning, look at the phone, and then you're eventually like, I've been laying in bed in an hour and I've added nothing to my life, nor begun my life for the day. I I don't know what it was like in the in the nineties, uh, but I feel like this has been going on since kind of like the sixties, seventies. Like this kind of, you know, like how in the early twentieth century there was no really such thing as a teenager. Like you kind of at some point you just become an adult, and it's very like work focused. And uh, you know, it is around the sixties where teen culture starts being a thing, like doing stuff just for fun, not being obsessed with careers. And it seems like at a certain point. Um, as careers become less and less important or it's rebellious to like understand that the you know corporate bullshit 90s ethos right mm-hmm. um, this question of what else is there then like fun pleasure and then eventually that becomes empty so I think it's um it's a very timely question for the past few decades I wouldn't say it's prescient but it's... I get that it's only ramped up since it started yeah it's it's kind of hard not to be uh, very nihilistic of it, just because you know you're like, you know, I'm I, I'm I, I want to get more out of life than you know working for a corner office and a white picket fence. So like, oh well, what do you want? Like, I want to play my PlayStation for eight hours a day. It's like, <laughs> oh well, okay, that's I, I'm I'm glad you're principled about something, and it, it is one of those just like, how free can you possibly be? It's like, well, I want to do what I want to do. Like, yeah, but that thing has been like focus grouped and studied a million times over to make sure you want nothing but that. So how free is it? Yeah. yeah, which is, again, it's more way more interesting to talk about the book sometimes than it is to read it. Because I do think, <laughs> I do think that idea of, like, you're free to do whatever you want, you're free to choose. But my brain is like a dumb reptilian thing that just wants to feel good all the time. Uh, yep. So so the- that's how we end up with Ennett House, right? People. Yeah addicted to you know tv drugs um so the, it's very the, hard to pick the good thing and mm-hmm. and differentiate that from just what my brain tells me i want all the time the, the great wording i read on it once that was all about the notion of free will is uh you can do what you want but you can't want what you want like you're wired a specific way and there's nothing you can really do about it. Even if you were like, never touch a drug, if you're wired for addiction, like it's just, you know, you can never touch a drug, but it's still something you're going to have to work against. So, yeah. All right. Uh, next section here. 
Gatlin has been Gatlin Gately has been asked to go to the store after two new female residents are refusing to eat his hot dogs. One of whom is Joel. Gately already senses something fishy that this is the kind of special special caseness that AA is specifically supposed to weed out of a person. That Pat M is already showing favoritism to Joel VD for some reason, with Pat asking Gately to find some special soda water she likes. Gately admits he's taking longer than necessary on these trips, that he's getting kicks out of driving recklessly in Pat's car. The cops in Boston residents tend to drive like maniacs as well, so he's not too worried getting busted for it. Also, driving around his old haunts in a car that isn't his makes him feel a little bit like he's back in the old days, thieving and being reckless. Uh, more discussion of how Gately's head is square and indestructible, his strange Prince Valiant bangs, <laughs> looking like someone tossed the remnant of a carpet sample on his head. Gately yeah, dropped- I really loved the bit about how his friends would just routinely break things against his head and see how far they could go. Um, one of your previous guests said this book's basically a big cartoon, and that really drives home how it is so cartoonish and comic booky. Oh yeah, you know, I find this is a trouble I have with like uh, a lot of like books that are supposed to be like funny in literature. And I know people have said some people find this book hysterical. I yeah, there's there's some witticisms in there, but I feel like the more a book is trying to be funny, the harder it is to really read the tone and like see the world as it's supposed to be. But uh, yeah, stuff like stuff like that, his you know square, indestructible head does kind of lend it more towards the cartoonish side, which I guess everything just it, you don't care as much that it doesn't make sense when it's got that kind of like otherworldly feel anyway. Uh, Gately drives recklessly through Boston U campus looking at women. He hasn't had sex in two years, physically incapable at one point due to Demerol abuse. AA encourages people to do the first year of sobriety sexless, but it does tend to degrade someone's confidence in even speaking to a woman. Uh, Great little paragraph here. Quote, Gately's never had sober sex sober yet or danced or held somebody's hand except to say the Our Father in a big circle. He's gone back to having wet dreams at age 29. Yeah, that that was a bit that, um, due to my lack of life experience, I didn't get. How how does um, abstaining from sex help you stay sober? Is 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 it normally linked to relapsing or? Uh, it, it, it's not. It's not so much that it leads to relapse. It's that this is a time when you should be working at your on yourself, and not to mention if the main problem with addiction is like. You're denying, you're denying yourself something that gave you a lot of pleasure. So it's not really good. You know, it, it, it would be, it could be very easily, uh, it could be very easy to just take that stimulation and put it all into sex. In which case you're not working on yourself. You're just trying to find your stimulation elsewhere. Yeah. It's about changing your relationship to, to pleasure. Exactly. And uh, although it is it is prominent enough in AA that uh, dating somebody in the program is referred to as the thirteenth step. So, and also, just putting this note out there because I always find it funny when I hear it. He's gone back to having wet dreams at age twenty nine. I am a, about to be a thirty four year old man. Never had a wet dream even once. I don't know. I think the world is playing a trick on me. You you you, you think it's a myth? You don't think it exists? It's a myth. <laughs> It's a myth, like, 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 like the moon landing and the biodegradable plastic. Yeah. And the earth being round. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, okay. Gately has switched to menthol cigarettes. Some, told, some people have told him they were worse than regular cigarettes, 
but after discovering the room he was staying in had to be nuclear waste style cleaned after decomposing asbestos was found, he figures he has bigger lung worries than menthol cigarettes. Continues driving through strange areas, one being all Portuguese. Uh, note, we're in multiple pages without a paragraph break territory, my least favorite parts of the book. Oh, he- another thing I thought is curious, if you don't mind me interrupting you, is Gately like racializes everything. So like he associates uh, the menthol cigarettes of black people. He mm. associates certain areas of the Portuguese. He's like very hyper aware of the racial associations of places. Um, in a way that, you know, isn't the most conscientious. Um, and I wonder, like, I don't know, what is the point to that? Is Because is, I thought, is Foster Wallace trying to explain how working class white people view race? In that case, it'll be a bit condescending, seeing as, as Foster Wallace himself isn't working class. I, and I, yeah. I don't know, how, how do you feel about those bits? Because I feel like Gately's meant to be, like, white trash, basically. Yeah. And... And I don't know how I feel about Wallace, like writing him this way. If, if, if it's Wallace's place, or I don't. How do you feel about about that stuff? How I, Gately's being written this entire. I world? have, I have a lot of conflicting feelings on that. Um, Got to be honest, one of my original aversions to the not only the book but uh, the people who tended to love the book is it did tend to be a very like well-read upper middle class kind of person and uh myself you know i went to a community college i I got an associates and i'm the first person in my family to even do that like both my parents were high school dropouts so uh, gotta be honest though uh my dad was a pretty racist guy so that was uh, but it, it was like the unobserved racism it was just kind of like yeah that's just you know that's just how it is. So yeah, I don't. I know think... it's like my, my dad was a, a, a raging homophobe, so uh, mm. I know what it's like. Right, but um, so I don't know. I have kind of a. I, I, I I'm kind of ambivalent about it. The fact that he's putting like, yeah, he's a white trash guy, and of course he. But I, I don't know. I think he is trying to show a little bit that like, this is somebody who is trying to better themselves despite being given none of the tools to do that at any point in his life. So I guess kind of by showing, he's kind of showing his defaults and just without having to constantly remind us that like, you know, uh, his mom was being beaten and he started drinking at a young age because of that. I feel like it's just a, a good way to show like, you know, it's not just the experiences. Like this is, this is what they made this person and that this is how he literally sees the world that like, that he can use such like horrible language and distinction in his head without any of like the negative feeling behind it. Does that make any sense? Yeah. I, it's just curious that like, I imagine Gately is pretty close to Foster Wallace in terms of like, this is how Foster Wallace is expressing his experience of drugs is, is through the, your main character being a recovering drug addict, right? So it's just curious that you pick like this um, huge, uh, supposedly white trash mm-hmm. guy to kind of express that. Um, yeah, it, it is very much strange that for the, the character that's supposed to be expressing the most uh, autobiographical part of him, he chose somebody who was nothing like him from an entirely mm-hmm. different background. Which I don't know. I'm very. I'm sure I could probably find something somewhere why he went that direction. 
Um, okay. He drives past a place called uh, Antitois Entertainment, which is a hangout for another Canadian separatist group, the Antitois. They're considered less terrifying than the FLQ and were protected regionally by the status of the late M. Duplessis. So this, I like, I actually saw this kind of cinematically in my head. Like, we almost like see Gately driving around all these locales and then suddenly the camera stops as his car keeps going. And we see the, uh, pretty much these people were protected. Let me try to phrase this right. Uh, so Gately is basically driving past the place that was funded by the man he accidentally killed. So just kind of like passing in the night, not aware of each other. Even the people in there were saying that uh, when Duplessis had been murdered, which was an assassination only ONAN would be stupid enough to believe that the command would believe was a botched burglary incident. So literally the, the guy, it's interesting to see what they thought that uh, the separatists believe like, oh, they're saying it's a botched burglary incident. like. Obviously, it was some kind of assassination. Meanwhile, here comes Don Gately bumbling through exactly how he bumbled into murdering that person in the first place. Yeah, and I really like what you say about it being so uh, cinematic. Because I remember the first time I read the section, I was so pissed off at reading this book. And we've just gone through like three pages of just Gately driving around, doing nothing, looking at stores. So my eyes are completely glazed over. And I was just like, okay, yeah, let's get through this. And then suddenly I was with the Antitoss. And I was like, wait, how did we get here? Is Gately in the shop? Why we I had to go yeah. back and like figure out where was that transition? I, I actually had to read ahead a little bit. Like, are, are we with this Lucian guy for like a paragraph? Do I even need to mention he's here? But obviously, yeah. Yeah, because it's it, the book normally is it's um really consistent with separating sections, and this is one of the few times where there is like an almost seamless transition into basically a completely different section. Yes, uh, and I re yeah I really like that whole bit of the you see it focuses on Gately's exhaust pipe and blowing out uh, waste, and then and then the waste hits the door of of the antitoires, and then night day turns into night, and it's this. It's really like it was, re was really good. I really like that. Mm. So we meet uh, Lucian and Ber Bertrand. Be yeah, Bertrand Antoine. Bertrand is the brains. Lucian somehow never got the hang of French, which is a very strange thing for a French Canadian person. Okay. <laughs> um, the group's terrorist activities are pretty lame, like putting a Quebec flag on an ONAN government building. Rejected by the FLQ and mostly restrained before Duplessis' death, but is now frittering away on dumb ideas. Lucian is in charge of labeling bootleg film cartridges. It looks out the door for hours, leaning on a broom he fashioned from a branch into a broom with a pointed weapon end. He has to watch all the cartridges that come in on a small viewer that is malfunctioning, warping all images on the left side of the screen. And, you know, I only think as I say it now... Uh, I do think the rest of this little chunk right here is very cinematic in how, like, we see him, he's just kind of looking out, and then suddenly we start seeing the wheelchair people just kind of mill in. And, yeah, you just have that little bit of, like, oh, there's a guy in a wheelchair. There's another guy in a wheelchair. There's a lot of people in wheelchairs on yeah. this street. Like, if we're going to get into the kind of... Like, this is the most exciting section of what we're discussing today, I think. Mm. And, and it really felt... Like looking back, it is really well crafted. Like the whole, it keeps talking about the broom and how the broom has been uh, 
made to be a weapon it's got like a particularly pointed tip and i I didn't think anything of that and then reading back Mm -hmm. i'm like oh he gets killed with the broom at the end it's it's a really great uh chekhov's pointy broom chekhov's pointy broom (laughs) but also like wallace himself uh was a huge fan of like dumb action films right and it's not like one time in the book where he just indulged himself and let him himself write like fun readable prose which is enjoyable so he can do it he just chooses not to for hundreds of pages i'm curious if he saw it because uh what happens with the broom which we'll get to in a minute it basically gets force fed down <laughs> lucian's mouth and out out his asshole scaring him entirely um i'm very curious that was famously in a, a horror movie from the 70s called cannibal holocaust where um, a, a, a tribeswoman is, you don't actually see the act, you see the after effect, but very, you know, haunting image. I wonder if he saw that at any point to come up with this scaring. I wouldn't be surprised. Like later on, there's a, a really obvious Monty Python reference. So I wouldn't be surprised if he's pulling from like pop culture films. Okay. Although I will say I did have one little thing here, which was honestly like, they talk about this jacked guy in a wheelchair shoving it down his throat. but. Honestly, all I can think is like, he's in a wheelchair. How does he have the leverage to like hold this guy down and do that at the same time? But that's, you know, that's, that's me being nitpicky. I, um, I, I do not have the answer to that question. <laughs> um, I do like how the AFR are described. They're almost like, it's like spiders are a big thing in the book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the way they're like climbing down the walls, it's, it, it felt very insectoid. It felt very spidery to me. Yeah. Um, so. Very cool. I like that the leader is wearing like a smiley face mask. Yeah, and there's been hints to like a smiley face motif, but like I, I know a lot. Of, it has it hasn't been really set in stone what it is, but it's been mentioned a few times of like people in masks and a smiley face. And uh, I know that Gately himself, like his shepherd or whatever that he pictures in his head, has like a smiley face mask. I, I forget what he was referred to as, but. Uh, so anyway, yeah, Lucian runs through, finds his brother dead. He reaches for a pistol, which has become ensnared on a thread in his pants, which uh, when he yanks the gun away, splits his pants down. So that's a little funny thing, you know, fighting for your life, pants around your ankles. Um, the, uh, a man in a smiley mask tells Lucian in French, which of course Lucian does not understand, that they have come seeking a certain film cartridge master. And uh, so, yeah, pretty much what we can... What we can gauge here is that Lucian, these guys somehow came across either, I don't think it's the master yet. Yeah. I think that gets found another way, but at least a copy of uh, the entertainment. And, but unfortunately, Lucian does not speak French. And so they can never quite communicate with us. So while they tear, while the wheelchair uh, assassins tear the place apart looking for the cartridge, they completely skewer him. Very strange thing, though. That little section ch- ends with uh, his soul leaves his body and soars north, sounding a bell clear and nearly maternal alarmed call to arms in all the world's well-known tongues. Like just, uh, yeah. we, j- just like a sentence or two where we just get into the spiritual aspect. Yeah, that that was a big moment of. See how everyone says when you finish it, you can go back and read it again and see stuff you didn't see. Um, I get the vibe that this sort of magical realism, spiritualism is the stuff that it's going to become more apparent after finishing it. Because this is the first point in the book that I'm aware of where something explicitly 
otherworldly and spiritual like happened right um like we've had we, we, is that there are spirits i guess in this world maybe um, yeah we, we've had a lot of absurdist and like dark absurdist things happen this is the first one though that is like outside the as absurd as it gotten it was all within like the rules of the known universe day to day and now we have definitely stepped outside that realm um We'll talk about it more at the very end section with uh, where we go back to 1963. But I think one of my beefs that I have with this book is the constant still like still reintroducing things yeah. far along into the book, particularly where we get here. But uh, we have a little chunk with Marie and Stapley again. But before um, we get to that chunk, uh, one thing I want to point out, you said... Um... You don't find a lot of this book funny, and for the most part, I agree with you. I I don't I don't read this and like laugh out loud all the time. But there's one joke in that uh, Antitoire Entertainment bit that I really loved is um the the they so when Lucien was trying to learn French, they teach him uh, Vachier Putin, mm-hmm. um, and and tell him it means um how to express your love and devotion to your mother. Uh, of course, it actually translates to fuck off, whore, I believe. Uh, and then in a footnote later on, when they're like interrogating Lucien for the entertainment, it says um, the only thing Lucien can think to say that they would understand is Vachier Putain. But he he realizes that might not be the best phrase to use. That I thought that was a really good joke. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. It's a, listen. There, there's definitely like anything in a book this long. There are funny parts. It's just. I think it's just been more like witticisms than anything else. Not, nothing that was really like, oh my God, I'm, I'm laughing. It's all been like, oh, okay, that's clever. But yeah, it's all, I think, I think cause it's so monotonous. Whenever there's a joke, it, mm. it, it surprised jolts you a bit. It's like, oh, that, that, something interesting happened. That's funny. Um, <laughs> but it's not really like a, it's not like a, a Vonnegut novel or something, which is actively quite right. humorous. Okay, so we are back with Maraith and Steeply on the same day. Steeply asked Maraith if he ever thought of viewing it. Uh, whether they have the master, they still have a read-only copy somewhere. Maraith confirms that. All the anti-ONAN cells have at least one read-only. Now, this confuses me here. Uh, read-only copy, I obviously know what that is as far as tech, but I'm curious if a read-only copy has like different effects than viewing the master. They're not entirely clear it might get cleared up at some point what whether the read only it's this is the way they're discussing it there seems to be a very distinct importance about the master as opposed to the read only but we don't really have any details as to why yeah i i is a read i don't know what read only is is that like a transcript um i i believe read only is uh Wait, no, I have that wrong. I, I was thinking like the way you used to have, uh, again, you're younger, when we had like burnable CDs. And I, I'm pretty sure read-only was like you couldn't, you couldn't add anything to the disc. You could only view what was already on there. Like, uh, mm-hmm. like non-writable technology. But uh, I don't know. I might be wrong on that. I don't know. Gonna, uh, How do you feel about this whole... This- Hollow, the hollow, hol, holography, holographic uh, theory about the entertainment. Um, did they do anything for you? Oh, where uh, like they say it's like, uh, yeah, the theory. I have the note here. Before JOI got into film, he was also a maker of reflecting panels. Um, 
And there's a theory that the compulsion to continue to watch has something to do with light density tapping into a neural yearning. I mean, maybe. I don't, I, I, I don't know. I'm not really sold on it. Yeah, it seemed, because this is written in the 90s, before mm-hmm. like Avatar happened and, and films became obsessed with 3D, and then we all realized 3D was bullshit. Yeah. It feels like he's trying to describe a 3D film. Uh, in its like earliest form as this really exciting thing that will entrance us. But also the like at the beginning, uh, the entertainment illusions were really exciting and like, oh, where's this gonna go? What's the entertainment gonna be? But now that I'm kind of realizing we're never fully gonna know what the entertainment is, and the more that they reveal about it, the less interesting it becomes. Like when it's revealed that the entertainment might basically be Joel Van Dyne's face, mm-hmm. it it felt like I don't know, a bit disappointing for me because, like, it's come up a lot in the podcast how Foster Wallace's treatment of women and, and he, he, it's always about um, describing how attractive they are or unattractive they are. Mm-hmm. So, the idea of the entertainment is just like Joe Van Dyne is, is so beautiful that you, you just can't, uh, you can't stop watching the screen. I don't know. It just, I feel like that, I don't know. I feel like maybe, I don't know if I want the entertainment to be different or mm-hmm. if. I want even less of knowing what it is. I like it as this nebulous thing. So what we have doesn't satisfy me. So this is my read on it so far. I've actually made the weird connection of uh, almost like a Kung Fu movie. And here's what I mean by that is that in every Kung Fu movie, there is the notion of like, uh, have you seen Kill Bill? Yeah. Okay. So the, the master who teaches Uma Thurman, uh, is named Pai Mei, and I don't know. It, are, are, do you know kung fu films particularly well? Not really. No. Okay, I just I, I wanted to make sure I wasn't like telling you something you already knew. Um, so in a lot of kung fu films, they all have the same bad guy, and it's all that same character that's in Kill Bill, uh, Pai Mei, and I believe that's somebody from like Chinese culture who would be like like a martial arts wizard, more or less. But mm. in a lot of his movies, he has one weak point that like moves on his body depending what time of day it is. And that's like his only vulnerability. And usually a lot of the uh, protagonist's struggle and training would be all about getting that one weak point. So my, my connection I make to this is that we have some kind of neurological weak point where if you can like, you know, because obviously we watch films, we watch entertainment and uh, it touches us in some psychological way. I am getting that James Incandenza somehow pinpointed through a mix of what's on the screen uh, and the lighting. Yeah. That, from what I recall, it's something like... The, the pr- pressure point of the pleasure part of the brain. Yes. It yeah. is the, the five-finger exploding heart, <laughs> Joel Van Dyne is your mom technique. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I I will be back in a sec. My flatmate has locked themselves out and they are banging on the door, so I have to let them in. I'll be back in a few seconds. Go for it. Okay. It is so delightful interviewing somebody with an accent. I feel so cultured sometimes. Just a little stuff like flatmate. I love it. I have I have not traveled enough. So I'm still anytime I travel somewhere where uh I was going to say where somebody has an accent, but realistically, where I am the dickhead with the accent, I'm always tickled, tickled by that. Except when I went to Oklahoma. Sorry, I was just talking to the listener about how fun it is just speaking with somebody who has a different accent. 
Oh yeah, I was gonna. Oh, I sorry to go off tales of the podcast. I was gonna ask you, have you been to Boston? Is it? Um, I'm planning to go. There? I'm planning to go there for the first time in a few weeks. Oh man, that's so cool because Boston's so like romanticized in my head. Um, I know someone from Boston; they're lovely. And then you know, Sweet Life of Zach and Cody, Twilight in Boston. You know, uh, Matt, the only thing <laughs> the only thing I know about Boston is great comedy, big hockey fans, and they're loud and beat the shit out of each other. That's that, that that's what I hear. But I'm sure it's like back in the day. Oh, but anyway, so jump back a second. Uh, so yeah, so from what I can garner about the entertainment is is it's some film where like you're looking up at Joel Van Dyne who is bending over very maternal and just apologizing like I'm sorry baby I'm sorry but because of yeah. the particular lighting and what's happening uh I feel like what's happening is it's getting right into somebody's like earliest earliest memories and basically yeah. turning them into a helpless like infant again uh, again like when you describe like that it sounds cool but there is a part of me that is like the David Foster Wallace just imagine like um, mummy ASMR and think this is the thing <laughs> that everyone would become obsessed with. This is the perfect piece of entertainment. Like it's just some, a very specifically wallace thing that would sedate him and he's kind of universalizing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, ooh, well, it's, I'm, I'm pulling this out of my ass because I just thought of it right now. But uh, given the thoughts on entertainment, something here with the maternal aspect there is a little bit of a notion of like maybe they stop moving or doing anything or breathing because with the maternal aspect it's like uh they're being taken care of right now like everything is being taken care of it there is their mommy looking down at them and just like we look for entertainment to soothe us we have just been so overwhelmingly soothed yeah again right out of my ass i don't know so no, that works really well on a metaphorical level. It's when you try to think about what the entertainment would literally be that it kind of is less satisfying. But yeah, if I take it, it's just kind of like a fairy tale. You know, you put this tape on and it, it, um, it's like the ring or something. Sure, it works. Yeah, why not? Um, the only other thing, we have a detail here where Maraith's father had a pacemaker and Maraith was in charge of always making sure any place they went didn't have like microwave waves or whatever, anything that would kill his dad. Uh, Maraith answered a video phone, a pulse of which malfunctioned the senior Maraith's pacemaker and killed him. Mm-hmm. And just to add to it, the call had been a telemarketer. So it wasn't even an important thing. Yeah, just a depressing aside about Maraith. Does that, does that, did you like that? Did that flesh out Maraith for you or? I, a little bit, I don't, I don't know. I mean, they talked a little bit how, like, his wife is in a coma and she was born without a skull. So, like, she's some way connected. to she, She's been affected by the pollution aspect, which gives mm. him a little bit more of a motivation. But we haven't, yeah. we haven't seen him do anything but, you know, sit around and talk to fucking Sleepily about God knows yeah. what. Yeah. He, he feels very much like an action movie character where you you understand why they're doing what they're doing and it it makes sense but they're not really like a person they're just kind of like an angry man who's gonna do the thing uh because my wife is in a coma and and, you know one thing i do really like is uh 
like right at the end, uh, it describes you know, Steve Lee Cox's head sometimes, and it's both feminine and bird-like, and uh, he, he's starting to speak of a more feminine inflection, and Moraith commits, quote-unquote, commits all of these things to his memories. So this, this constant, Moraith is constantly like looking at Steepley's body language and committing it to memory. Mm. Maybe that implies mm. some sort of future betrayal. I'll be honest with you, I don't remember if Moraith is with Steepley or against Steepley because the double, 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 double agent thing just completely oh, yeah. <laughs> confused me. But, but yeah, maybe that implies a future kind of, you know, he's uh, figuring Steepley out or something's going to happen there. Hopefully. Right. I'm, I'm really hoping there's some kind of payoff to them <laughs> just watching Tucson burn, chatting about God knows what, which is what it seems to have been. But all right, we get into our last chunk of notes for the week. And I hated this section so much. Yeah. Winter, 1963, Sepulveda, California. Uh, I, I have my notes, unknown narrati- narrator, but I'm pretty sure we're dealing with young James Incandenza and Incandenza Sr., who we last saw back in episode six, talking to his son about, uh, you know, making something of himself. Um, the narrator in the first person is asked to help his father and mother in the bedroom. The father works at a commercial studio and is still wearing a wig and production makeup, a white wig. He portrays the Glad Sandwich bag mascot, the man from Glad. I meant to look this up. I don't know if this was ever an actual mascot. It's possible. The father. I got, gave... I got very strong. Was um, it the Duff Man from Simpsons kind of vibe? <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, with the white wig and like the powder face, I I'm picturing more of like. A, a Ronald McDonald knockoff. Mm, yeah. Really, really cares about your leftovers. Yeah. Uh, the father gives him a glass of tomato juice to hold while he walked oddly on his mattress looking for an exact spot that is causing an annoying squeak. He claims at night the squeak, the squeak travels from this spot to the entire bed. I want to point out the squeak because this is driving me crazy. So in the AFR bit, mm-hmm. um, there's the whole squeak 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 is foreshadowing the AFR showing up and then in a footnote it describes that the squeak has become synonymous with like murder because yeah it's like it's like AFR. a it's like a portent of doom it's like yeah it, it kind of like uh you know you you never hear the bullet with your name on it like yeah and then here we have the the squeak tormenting the father but it's the bed and obviously it's in the 60s mm-hmm. so i um so I, I guess it's meant to kind of uh, embed the whole section of this kind of like doom that something horrible is going to happen. Of course, nothing actually happens, but there's um maybe it's meant to be like a you've associated a squeak of tension now. So mm-hmm. maybe well uh, we we know we know that young Jim here gets involved with Avril later on, so something with the Quebecois rebels are going to seep into his life. Mm. So we have that. Um, Jim is now bigger than both his parents. His father wants him to help take the bed frame part and look for the squeaky part to tighten it. Uh, Jim questions if it isn't just the mattress, but basically a new mattress is more expensive than a frame, so he'd rather rule out the frame first than doing anything that required such an expensive fix. Flips the king-size mattress onto Jim, which nearly takes him out. The thing is massive, yet still floppy and structurally unsounded, knocking over lamps here and there. So 
this chapter is almost entirely about a father and son slowly taking apart parts of a bed and leaning it in the hallway with the always detailed DFW being sure to mention the exact degree of the angle the mattress is leaned against the wall. Yeah. And again, like when I, when I first read this, it this drove me insane. Cause I'm like, I hate this. I yeah. do not care about this bed. I just want to go read something interesting. So um, I think it, it did help like rereading it. Cause I didn't have the same urgency. Like I thought like the first time reading something, you just want to get to the next cool bit. But when you're rereading it for a purpose, it's like, okay, let's just slow down and take our time. So I do, I do think there is some cool kind of stuff about like, how domineering of a figure the father is and how the mother never mm-hmm. speaks and there, there is this like tension this you kind of get how tense his um, james childhood was right but yeah i do think it's presented in a very very dull way yeah it's just i don't get it i was i was liking this book a lot but this really took me back to like the first hundred or so pages with like just how how many pages of this book had, how many trees had to die so we had to get you know, like ugh, we could repopulate the fucking rainforest, like, but then we wouldn't know the exact diagnosis of the color. They spend a paragraph on the color of the rug and whether it's this kind of blue or that kind of blue, and it just yeah, no, it really drove me crazy, especially reading it for like the podcast and just like I don't know what I'm gonna say about mm. this. I I don't know how to comment on what color the rug is. Or... Right. And, and this is why it bothers me that like David Foster Wallace has said like. Oh, well, this book is about sincerity, where maybe it's just about the art that's come since. But like, when I get this much pointless detail that's supposed to tell me something, I think of the opposite of sincerity. I think of like the dumb, ironic 3 a.m. adult swim cartoons. They're like, we're going to throw a bunch of bullshit at you and you're going to justify it to yourself that it's, it's artful as opposed to. And I know there's, there's something to be said about it being in the first person. But again, the problem with me here is that with all the with all the stuff we have seen about James and Candenza so far, the way they're describing him now does not sound like anything we've heard before. They, it sounds like they're describing yeah. him as like like on the spectrum in some degree. Like he's fascinated with angles. Like there's actually we have here. Uh, yeah, at the very end of this, he dives onto his bed, knocking off a doorknob, which he watches roll. And then we literally get like the physics diagram in the book describing the radius and circumference in in the pattern that the that, that the doorknob rolled in. And it's like we haven't seen any hint of this in a character that we've been told about for almost five hundred pages now. Yeah, I guess I because I keep thinking about you know this is water and trying to think of it as like a key to understanding what. Wallace is going for here and I thought maybe it's a thing of like at the beginning of the novel you have these very kind of simple ideas of the characters and the more and more it goes on the, the further back you go the more you kind of get them so at the beginning James um, James Aaron is just like a wacky filmmaker Willy Wonka man by the end you find out you know he was you know, he's reading some maths and science and then he got into tennis and then he but but I don't know how how much I really asked this. I I completely don't understand the um, annular fusion thing. Like, um, it's meant to be like an important theory, you know, the annular systems thing. I I don't know how that. Do you get that? Is that I don't I don't know how that plays into the the novel. I, I, I got it. Wait, the the what thing you're looking for? So um so in uh, footnote two hundred and eight, 
it says that what we're reading here is an excerpt from James Oroning Condenser's book, uh, chapter 16, uh, The Awakening of My Interest in Annular Systems. And mm. the book is called The Chill of Inspiration, Spontaneous Reminiscences of 17 Pioneers um, of DT Cycle Lithiumized uh, Annular Fusion. Um, so I, I think it's meant to be like the scientific discovery that I assume is important to like the the world of the book um but i don't like get it i don't, I don't know what it is yeah i don't i i don't even remember this at all i don't have any notes on it so i don't i have no idea so imagine like it's really weird so this is like from an academic journal wait this is the moment where you figured out this theory and i thought i thought conceptually i thought it would be really cool it'd be like maybe he had this like horrific like traumatic experience with his dad and the only way he could process it was through like mathematical equations or turning it mm. into something really cold but nothing really happens it's just super tense and maybe if you had a dad like this who was quite overbearing i guess and mm. um maybe this reads as a very like traumatic scene but it yeah it yeah. didn't do much for me emotionally yeah this is only the second time we've seen james senior and like a lot of this well what we have here is uh the last little note i have is um, while grabbing for a supposed troublesome bolt, Senior starts uh, having a coughing fit and collapses, spasming. Junior gives him space. Senior has collapsed straight down and broken the frame in two. Spasming, face on the floor, ass in the air, spitting up either blood or tomato juice. Dust <laughs> from his impact rising into the air. We, they mentioned the dust rising a lot. Yeah. Which I guess could be like repercussions rippling out in the world. Maybe. I don't know. There's also like the mold. Right um, underneath the bed, which, which I, I feel like mold is a big deal because of the how, like how's origin stories eating the mold as a kid, right? So, right. The, but they, it's similar they, to dust, right? The accumulation they, they, is bad, right? But they mention it so little that I keep, <laughs> like I keep forgetting mold. It, it's like oh, mold's an important part of the story. Like yeah, it's so important. They mention it once every three hundred pages. <laughs> I think it's really vivid in my mind because that's from. I had so much energy when I first started this book. So uh -huh. everything in the first 50 pages was like so important. Um, so that mold bit, like it was always stuck in my memory is a really cool scene. Okay. Uh, so yeah, we don't know if he died here. Um, Junior doesn't help him. He goes to the mother in the hall where she's having the trouble getting the vacuum cleaner past the stack box spring and mattress taking up hall space. Junior then ran off to hide because he has a fear of the vacuum, like he's a small dog, <laughs> which is said to be similar to his father's irritation with the squeak. So, and then the thing with the doorknob and the whole diagram, and it's just. I wonder yeah. if the fear of the vacuum, the, which is a cleaning object, has anything to do with his marriage with Avril, who is like obsessive about cleaning or. True, true. It could come in there, especially, you know, his father. I, I, I'm, I'm guessing that he maybe dies here, but, you know, his father, yeah. Yeah, one way or another, is going through a very traumatic experience while dressed up as, you know, <laughs> the man from GLAD being sandwich bags and trash bags and all that, which is another sanitary type thing. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if this scene would have worked better for me in, like, a film. Like, maybe the visual image of watching, like, someone dressed up really stupidly this like short stout guy shouting at his son and wife who are both mm. taller than him and then like collapsing and like vomiting 
either blood or tomato juice. Maybe that would be like really way more entertaining in um in a visual medium. Mm-hmm. But uh, to read it, 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 it just it's so little for me. And there is this leap of faith for this book you have to do. But whenever you read something that's terribly boring, you just have to believe that it matters, and at some point it will make sense and and feel valuable. Yeah. And that's the only real hope to it. Like, I remember that first time we meet Erdity and then we don't meet him for 400 pages where it's like, it's not like any of his background has like come to fruition. It's just like, oh, there's that guy. So. Yeah. I actually really like Erdity because I, I don't think, I think Foster Wallace is basically Erdity. Like, addicted mm. to weed, this kind of dicky academic guy. Mm. Uh, you know. I, I, I think he's I think he's a weirdly revealing character. Maybe <laughs> I don't know if Wallace like in, in, in meant for that to be. There's also a weird thing where Adedi like has like unreciprocated feelings, uh, which mm. very much reminded me of you know the, the Wallace stuff, the drama. Um, mm. But yeah, but uh, that's all I have to say on that. Really. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, well, that is uh, the end of my notes for this week. So, uh, trying to think, do we have anything to wrap up? Any any culmination here? Yeah, I guess. I guess this really like this book has really made me question like how important my actual enjoyment is mm. in reading something. Like, this is a book that constantly tells you to stop enjoying yourself and to be bored. Mm. So, like, when I'm reading it and I'm, I'm not having a good time, like, is that a valuable critique of the book? Or am I just, like, a dumb, pleasure-hungry person who wants to read fun things all the time? Um, that, that, that is the main thing this book engages in people. Is It's, like, an initial, like, is this stupid or am I stupid? It really makes people doubt themselves. I think Wallace's opinion, if I think Wallace's opinion of people is a bit too low, because I think, especially like now in 2020, I've seen so many of my friends who spend a lot of their time reading articles about like politics, you know, given how this year has been, mm-hmm. reading dry stuff and caring about dry stuff, I, I, I and, and being more aggravated with the constant entertainment culture, I, and I feel like. I feel like we aren't constantly inundating ourselves with fun, fun, fun. I feel like we do spend a good portion of our days feeling discomfort and thinking about, you know, is this election worth anything? Mm-hmm. Uh, how would the, the race riots stop? Uh, you know, should we defund police? Like we we do, we don't, I don't think we just sit around in pleasure boxes. So I, I've, I wonder if this book constantly telling me that I am wrong, that at 8 p.m. of my day, a stressful day, I want to sit down and read something that will make me feel anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you see, I don't it, know, it's a bit it, harsh. It, it's, it is one of those tricky things. And this is one of those things where I've said that this book feels particularly 90s to me in that uh, it's in an era, it, 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 this is being written in an era where in the zeitgeist, younger people are definitely thinking like, man, the world's just kind of bullshit. But now we, we look back in retrospect, it's like, Oh, I'm sorry. Are you not happy in your booming economy, getting jobs right out of college, not being crippled by debt? So it's kind of people are taking this in in a modern era where Mm. there are like much bigger things happening, which uh, I think if this were written today, there would probably a bit more of uh, I, I think it would be less about entertainment and more about information in general. Yeah, because 
if you were to take it at the time or like a people were just entertaining themselves and you know because boredom is the bad thing whereas the main takeaway i would have today is we talked about it before with the cell phone which i guess is a kind of an entertainment but particularly with the election like you mentioned it's i have had to have the, had to stop myself every now and again and be like is this doing anything other than making me angry right now is there <laughs> yeah. any new information in this that what about this is really important to my life right now or am i just getting myself riled up for something i can't do anything about right now yeah and i wonder if that shift I don't know what the air is like in America, but on the internet, it does seem it, like... It, the, the air in America is on fire. <laughs> that is the air in America right now. Well, that's how it feels like here. Like, everyone is... You, you can't really have a conversation now without politics coming up. And I wonder... I don't know. I wonder if this book was even written 10 years later, if Wallace would have mm. would have maybe... Maybe, yeah, made it more information-oriented. Uh well, which, which it, it would serve well as such like an encyclopedic novel where you're reading so much information that feels like aggravating or boring. I think it would have been really, I do, another reason I think it would have been information-based, and again, this is not any long-standing philosophy I have referenced somewhere, I'm thinking it as we go, but mm. particularly after 9-11 with the inundation of, like we had 24-hour news before then, but all of a sudden every single news channel had some little crawlers on the bottom of the, the Chiron, making sure, like... I didn't I know that. Did that start with 9-11, the yes. crawling news? Wow, it, I didn't know it, At least in the U.S., that's where it started, just because there mm. was so much information coming in mm. that they needed more than one output. But now it's it's the standard, and it's... Uh, actually, I don't know if CNN still does that. I can't remember the last time I watched that. But... I, <laughs> But when it becomes like a perspective thing, because I remember like after 9-11 happened and I was young, I was like 14, 15. I remember having the thought that like, you know, if I didn't have access to like a radio or television, none of this would really reach me. Like it wouldn't have had any effect on me whatsoever. It's literally just pictures on a box telling me something bad happened and I should be afraid right now. And yeah not even in a conspiracy kind of way, just in a thinking about perspective and what really affects it. And, you know, I, I was living in Southern New Jersey, like an hour and a half away from everything. And it still didn't really affect me in any way. Yeah. I, I, I've been thinking, oh, yeah, that kind of empathy thing that the book is obsessed with. Like, I think it's even more intense now because I remember like, um, like when, when the French shootings were happening, Oh, in London, we had, uh, God, I'm blanking on the name of the tower. You know, the, the Grenfell Towers, the Grenfell Tower fires. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if, if that was a big deal in America, but in London, there was this huge Grenfell Towers that were on fire and, and loads of people died and it was horrifying. Was but, it, a, what was it, an arson or a political thing? Or It was, it was like bad, um, it was like something in the housing blocks, just, just like, blew up like it was complete okay, happenstance okay. it was like an oven or something um and it, it pointed out how bad the government was doing of taking care of people and but when i found out about that it was like really early in the morning and my nan just like told me she'd seen it and i, I just i did i couldn't feel anything because I, I i i uh it's so hard to turn on the empathy button of i have to feel the death of tens and you know, several people right now Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost impossible to feel that way. Same with like a mass, mass shootings happening in America constantly. Um, 
eventually it's so numbing to hear about them that, you, that it's really hard to get to that empathy point. So I wonder what, I wonder how Wallace would have felt about, in my opinion, it becoming even harder to feel empathetic like today mm -hmm. because we're so inundated with information. Yeah, it's, uh, well, I know you guys have stuff going on over there with Brexit and all that stuff, but here it's been, and it's really been building up over the last 15 years, but it feels like there's a kind of unofficial balkanization of the United States where it's just like, if you're in this region, you will like the people in this region are so different than the people that you hear that like, it, it's hard to feel anything for them. Cause it's, it is also just, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't care for my country very much right now my country or my countrymen. Yeah, so. I'm, I'm not feeling great about Great Britannia either. Uh, mm -hmm. A wonderful colonial nation. Uh, <laughs> but what, what is the latest on Brexit right now? Like what's happening with it? It seems like they've been trying to kick the can down the, down the road. I'm honestly not even sure. Like, I don't know. Like we don't really get inundated with Brexit news anymore because after, mm -hmm. yeah, after COVID hit, like, bro. Every, no one talks about Brexit anymore, like in, in a very colloquial way. Like I'm sure like people working in the government think about it a lot. But like on someone on the ground level, it's just it's very low on the um discussion point. Yeah. It's like I think right now the biggest tensions in London are just sure similar to America, like about like the eviction rates going so high and mm -hmm. um the COVID being handled so poorly. Um yeah, we've got uh, the, the, the federal government has extended the moratorium on evictions, but it's still like it's going to be a nightmare when, when it comes out. Nobody's sure what's happening. Uh, as far as the COVID stuff, like people, uh, people are we're, we're starting to get a little scared over here because like we all got a little loosey goosey over the summer. But uh, it, the weather's already getting cooler. So it's like people are very much grappling with like, are we going to have to shut down again? Yeah. And, and again, this is all with, and also in the background, uh, our president might cancel an election and, you know, throw out the constitution. Any, oh, yeah. You had the whole, the postal, the postal service fiasco. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 Sorry, a, I shouldn't laugh. Uh, it's awful. Oh no, no, no. It's, very it's, bad. It's terrifying and hilarious. Yes. That, that our president is making news saying he didn't want to go to a an American cemetery in France because it's full of losers. Yeah. Whew. Okay. Well, we could keep going all day about yeah. very scary shit in the world. But uh, yeah, this has been a good episode. You had, a, you had a lot of good insights. And I like having somebody more the target audience, like as we were talking, like being extremely young. Uh, well, younger than me, at least. But like, again, you're, you're at the, in the demographic where I feel like everybody really gets into this book. I feel that we didn't, we didn't get into any of the racial aspect at all, uh, other than Gately. Yeah, I, I don't think it's, in the same way that, I do think it's aimed at like white dudes, because in the same way that like women on, the episode, on your episodes read it, and it's so glaringly obvious that like a mm -hmm. guy is writing this, and like, you know, it's very, so male gazy. It, I do get the same feeling as someone who like isn't white, because there are, I can't really think of a single well-written like non-white character in the book. They are all mm. a bit of stereotypes or insensitively written. Well, he's not. I don't think Foster Wallace is racist. I just think he has that very like 
Gen X liberal attitude about race. Like he mm-hmm. um, fundamentally sees other races as like so different and almost like fascinatingly different. Like mm-hmm. uh, there's an exotic quality to them, but but there's not not really the sensitivity or just like hey these are just people there's a bit coming up with kennedy Eddie. in like the next episode there's like a bit oh. <laughs> kennedy Eddie and a, a black dude and I I, I I i thought it was funny at first that then it got kind of weird and racial and uh and yeah that it's um he it's got this sort of un- discomfort about it he can't just write like an asian character or a black character they have to be really Asian or really black. Like it's um, <laughs> he has to make it really clear. Like you know the episode you did with uh, I can't remember who it was, but the, you know the medical attaché is like half white. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and lots of half white people are maybe basically passing. Like it's it's already the Foster Wallace makes like a huge deal that he's he's half Asian. Like um, mm. so yeah, I do get like kind of you know liberal Gen X white guy. See, I I, f- I feel like that was more like the attitude towards that kind of thing in the '90s, where it was mm-hmm. more it was more important to like just make sure they were in there than to actually look into them at all. I mean, yeah, and that's one thing I've been thinking about. Like, if I so he uses the N word in this book a lot, um, yeah. and if I like I have and and. I feel like right now, like transphobia is such a touchy issue because we're at a point where there's lots of trans visibility, but the world collectively hasn't like reached that point of um, not being collectively not trans. Like we're only just now hitting where celebrities, PR teams are thinking about pronouns and things like that, making sure that, mm-hmm. that people don't get cancelled. And if and I have trans friends, so if I wrote a book where I just kept using transphobic slurs mm-hmm. and then like gave it to my trans friends to read, like would, I don't know, would they come back like? what are you trying to say like why are you using words that are very harmful to us like constantly like did i imagine like did foster wallace like give this to his black friends and they get to the you know wardine b cry chapter did any of them like talk to him like hey man uh what the hell like what are you trying to do with this or was it just yeah when you have to actually deal with reckoning of how those people will deal with your work i feel like mm-hmm. you become way more sensitive about it I feel like you could probably write a very successful short story just called David Foster Wallace's One Black Friend. <laughs> just responding to reading this, like, I don't know how I feel about this. Like, well, no, it's because he was raised wrong. Like, but, okay. <laughs> but I'm not the person who should write that. So, All right. Yeah. Well, Josh, thank you very much for doing this. This has been a, this has been a good episode. I like that. Thank you for having me. Uh, I like... I look forward to, to, to continuing the journey, listening to the podcast and reading the book. And hopefully it, you know, I mean, it has its moments, but hopefully it really gets better. Hopefully we hit a point where we can read like a solid hundred pages and it's like just good, you know? Uh, yeah. So what, what I haven't hit yet and I get with every other book is because I only read up until like what I need for the next week's episode. At no point have I gone like, man, I really want to read more of this right now it's always just been the obligation for the podcast, but we'll get there. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. Um, So tell us again, your podcast and where we can find you on social media. Awesome. So uh, our podcast is the minority arts appreciation society podcast. Uh, In in, social media, you can find us at at minority arts podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, 
I, I'm Josh Kaluba. You can search on Twitter and follow me, but, but yeah, I, I don't really invest much in my private Twitter page, so I don't give a shit. But yeah, check out the pod if you want. Uh, we recently did an episode on, I don't know if you're into like minimal synth, like uh, industrial, but we recently did an episode of Frobbing Crystal. Uh, that was really fun. I think we've got one on suicide coming out. Um, so yeah, check it out. It's, it's a good time. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I will check that out. So uh, thank you, Josh Kaluba. I will now stop recording, but you and I can chat for a minute.